It's nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT on 100.1 FM. It's your public radio station. Broadcasting from here on Signal Hill, Kodiak, Alaska, where it's 53 degrees. We're looking for rain today. We've reached our predicted high. South winds to 15, gusting as high as 20 today. Rain tonight, too, in the low around 48. South winds to 20, decreasing to 15, but could gust as high as 30 tonight. Tomorrow, rain, mainly before 1 p.m., then showers after that, high near 54 tomorrow. Southeast wind gusting as high as 20. And for Saturday night, showers, the rain could be heavy at times on Saturday night. Coming up on the midday report, the Ryanair flight had some tense moments on Wednesday. Delta variant is in Alaska too. An indicted soldier is allowed to come back and serve at Fort Hood. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's targeting big tech, big pharma, and other industries where he says powerful mergers have prevailed at the expense of open competition and affordable choices available to consumers. One of the dozens of actions and recommendations outlined in today's executive order includes moves to cut costs for millions living with hearing loss. After these rules go into effect, a pair of hearing aids could cost hundreds of dollars, not thousands. And he says hearing aids can be sold over the counter under new rules. The president also wants regulators to apply more scrutiny to bank mergers. NPR's David Gura has more. The number of banks has shrunk in recent years, and executives are likely to cut back more branches. The pandemic accelerated growth of digital banking, but mergers also lead to bank closures. The Biden administration is concerned the population of unbanked Americans will grow as a result and it will become harder for poorer people and small businesses to take out loans. Today's executive order also encourages the government's consumer watchdog to issue rules that would make it easier for customers to switch banks. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Families and rescuers in Surfside, Florida are watching the number of people unaccounted for falling and the death toll rising. Now 78 people confirmed dead after 14 more bodies were pulled from the rubble of the Champlain Tower South building. Miami-Dade County Mayor Danielle Levine-Cava says authorities have yet to locate 62 people who've been unaccounted for since part of the condo building collapsed more than two weeks ago. This recovery is moving forward with great urgency as we work 24 hours a day on the pile to recover victims and bring closure to all of the families still waiting. Authorities have launched a grand jury investigation into the collapse. Police in Haiti have made more arrests in connection with the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. NPR's Jason Bobian reports that of the 17 detainees, two are reported to be U.S. citizens and the rest are from Colombia. 
Officials in Port-au-Prince say the attack on President Moise's residence was a highly orchestrated operation involving more than two dozen commandos, six vehicles, assault rifles, and sophisticated communication equipment. Police are still searching for the masterminds of the assassination, but they say two of the detainees are Haitian-Americans from Florida. The rest are Colombians. Colombia's national police chief says his country is aware that more than a dozen former Colombian soldiers have been arrested and others remain on the run. One group of suspects was found on the grounds of the Taiwanese embassy, and two others were detained by a crowd of local residents who said they found the alleged commandos hiding in the bushes. Jason Bobian, NPR News. The Dow has closed up 447 points, ending the day at 34,869. You're listening to NPR News. NPR News is presentada a usted en parte por la Providence Kodiak Island Centro de Asoramiento. Para una cita o más información, por favor llama al 907-481-2400. There were some tense moments on a Ryanair flight from Bethel to Antioch on Wednesday when a passenger tried to take control of the plane. The other passengers restrained the man and the pilot was able to land the plane safely. KYUK's Greg Kim has more. A Ryanair Cessna caravan with six people on board was traveling from Bethel to Antioch on Wednesday around 3 p.m. One of the passengers was 18-year-old Bethel resident Jaden Lake Kamaroff. Troopers said in a written statement that during the flight, Lake Kamaroff got up from his seat and took control of the plane's steering wheel, causing the plane to nosedive. Lee Ryan, president of Ryanair, said the nosedive lasted only a moment. Our pilot relied on his training and professionalism was able to just push the passenger backwards, retook control of the aircraft. Passengers helped restrain the, the unruly passenger, and they landed the plane without incident, further incident. Troopers arrested Lake Kamaroff when the plane arrived in Antioch. He's being charged with terroristic threatening in the second degree, attempted assault in the first and fifth degree, and assault in the third and fourth degree. Ryan said the pilot and passengers did not sustain any injuries. We're very thankful for the safe outcome and extremely grateful for our pilot and the passengers on board. He called the incident damaging for air travel in the region. We rely so heavily on aviation in western Alaska. There's no roads. It's the only way in and, in and out. And uh, when a scenario goes happens like this, it's uh, very unfortunate for not only the industry, but um, everybody, everybody in western Alaska. Ryan says this is the first time a passenger on a Ryanair flight has attempted to take control of a plane. But he said the airline will be considering ways to prevent an incident like this from happening again, and he'll be calling other airlines for ideas. In Bethel, I'm Greg Kemp. Alaska's viral detectives have recorded a sharp increase in the number of cases of the more contagious Delta variant of COVID-19. The strain has jumped from 7 to 40 percent of samples in just two weeks, according to a new report. The numbers don't provide a perfect picture of how Delta is spreading across the state because some regions have higher levels of testing than others. But officials say that the variant's fast-growing share of the samples analyzed in Alaska tracks with what's happening across the country as the substantially more contagious strain crowds out others. State officials say the variant threatens to boost the number of cases in Alaska, which have been ticking up from recent lows for the past three weeks. It could also put new stresses on the state's health care infrastructure. 
but officials also underscore that existing vaccines still appear to be highly effective against the strain. Dr. Ann Zink, Alaska's chief medical officer, says it's another argument for getting a shot. While every choice we make has risks and benefits associated with them, for the vast majority of people, getting vaccinated is a much safer choice at preventing illness uh, and minimizing the impacts of this virus on your life. The Delta variant was first detected in Alaska in late May in the greater Anchorage area, but cases have now been discovered in many other parts of the state. Officials aren't downplaying the risk posed by the Delta variant, but they say it doesn't change the underlying public health tools they're using to fight the COVID-19 pandemic, whether that's treatments for individual patients or community-wide recommendations to slow the transmission. You might be paying a lot less attention to COVID-19 these long summer days, but the pandemic isn't over and the more contagious Delta variant is spreading and cases are rising. Now that vaccines are widely available, COVID is inflicting much less damage. How much less, though, depends on where you live. And as Nat Herz with Alaska's public media reports, doctors and health officials are still trying to spread the message about vaccines. Tom Quimby's job feels way different than it did a year ago when he was working as a doctor at the Matsu Hospital's emergency department without the protection of the COVID-19 vaccine. Now he leaves his industrial respirator in his garage and his colleagues are growing beards because they're not as worried about getting a tight seal on their masks. Before we were all really worried and, and so I think even though we're still wearing masks, we still gown up and stuff before going around, but it doesn't feel as stressful as it once did. That's the good news. Cases in the Matsu and across the state are far below where they were during the height of the pandemic, but COVID patients are still showing up in Quimby's emergency room. His region is among the state's least vaccinated, and Quimby says it's pretty dispiriting to see patients coming in for treatment for what is now a largely preventable illness. He compares it to a woman he once saw who'd fallen off a motorcycle, wasn't wearing a helmet, and ended up brain dead. You're just like, this is so needless and and you just see the anguish and pain and you can't help but just feel frustration about that. Vaccination rates vary widely across the state. In the Matsu, for example, it's just four in 10 eligible people, half the rate in the city and borough of Juneau. But public health officials are still hitting on some consistent messages statewide, namely that the shots remain the best weapon against the virus. That includes against the Delta variant, which spreads far more quickly than other strains and represents a growing share of Alaska's cases, which, by the way, have been ticking up from their recent low levels. Ann Zink is the state's chief medical officer. She notes 97% of Alaska's COVID-19 hospitalizations are now among unvaccinated patients. Cases are low, but the Delta variant is spreading and is increasing in our state as well as the country, which can spread more easily, can take people sicker, uh, and can affect younger people. And our best way to protect against it is two doses of vaccine. Alaska has fallen behind in the national vaccine race. Early in the pandemic, it was one of the leaders in giving out the shots. It's now around 30th place among the 50 states. 
Nonetheless, many of Alaska's elders and most vulnerable residents are protected, which makes for a very different experience for those on the pandemic's front lines. In the rural southwest Alaska hub town of Bethel, Dr. Ellen Hodges says her hospital hasn't seen a COVID-19 patient in months, and she occasionally gets to take days off. I'm much, much less anxious and much, and I'm able to sleep better <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And I still do worry. Like I said, I don't want anyone to get COVID, but oh, it, it's so much better. Hodges is chief of staff at the tribally run Yukon Kuskokwim Health Corporation, whose region was hard hit by the pandemic. While things have markedly improved there, YKHC is still operating under emergency response protocols using an incident command system, and it recently faced a COVID-19 outbreak in one of its villages, Hooper Bay. The interesting thing about that outbreak, though, is that because so many elders have been vaccinated, people aren't getting seriously ill. But YKHC's region has one of the state's youngest populations, and there are still significant numbers of children ineligible for the vaccine. Hodges says they're vulnerable to the virus. It is less disruptive in some ways because we're not, our hospital isn't overwhelmed, our ICU isn't overwhelmed, all those kinds of things. However, I do, I worry about every single person who gets it because of these long-term consequences uh, that people can experience. Officials across the state are targeting pro-vaccine messages toward parents and children right now. That's in part because school sports practices start up in a matter of weeks, and it takes more than a month after your first shot to get full protection from most of the vaccines. Zink, the chief medical officer, says she thinks it's going to be a tough slog to significantly boost vaccination rates beyond where they are now. But Quimby, the Matsu doctor, says it's not all anti-vaxxers still out there. I still almost daily get people are like, oh, no, I haven't really thought about getting the vaccine. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, tell me about it. They just need a nudge, Quimby says, from a trusted friend or a doctor. In Anchorage, I'm Matt Hers. Coast Guard Station Juno underwent a change of command on Wednesday. Captain Darwin Jensen assumed command from Captain Stephen White as the Coast Guard Sector Juno commander. Rear Admiral Nathan Moore, who is a commander of Coast Guard District 17, presided over the ceremony. White has been commanding since the May of 2018 and is retiring after 27 years of service. As the new sector commander, Captain Jensen will be captain of the port and will assume responsibility for the station's function in southeast and the whole southeast Alaska region. He will be in charge of over 250 personnel in Sector Juno. A Fort Wainwright soldier who fatally shot a Black Lives Matter protester in Texas last year was indicted last week by a grand jury in Austin, Texas. Army Sergeant Daniel Perry was stationed at Fort Hood when he shot the protester on July 25th, but on September 1st, he was assigned to Fort Wainwright. Perry says he shot the protester who was carrying a rifle out of self-defense, but a local civil rights advocate worries the case could inflame local racial tensions. As KUAC's Tim Ellis reports, A U.S. Army Alaska spokesperson said Wednesday that Perry is assigned to the 1st Striker Brigade combat team, but the spokesperson couldn't answer other questions about why the 34-year-old infantryman was allowed to be stationed here despite facing a trial. Travis County, Texas Sheriff's Office spokesperson Kristen Dark says Perry was formally charged on July 1st. He was booked into the Travis County Jail on two charges, murder and deadly conduct. 
A local television news outlet says Perry flew from Alaska to Texas last week to surrender to authorities after a warrant was issued for his arrest. Dark said he was released soon after posting a $300,000 bond. He was booked into the Travis County Jail around 2.20 that afternoon and he was released from custody at 2.36, I believe. Perry was off duty that hot summer night, working a side gig as an Uber driver. He reportedly was waiting for a fare when he encountered protesters at a downtown intersection around 10 p.m. According to the indictment, as Perry tried to turn onto a cross street, he, quote, recklessly engaged in conduct that placed a group of protesters walking in the roadway in imminent danger of serious bodily injury, unquote. The indictment says he was texting on his cell phone while making the turn as pedestrians were in the crosswalk. Then he drove into a group of protesters who were in the street. That's the basis of the deadly conduct charge. The indictment says Perry threatened one of the pedestrians and drove toward that person, but he wasn't able to get very far because the street was filled with protesters. One of them was 28-year-old Garrett Foster, who was carrying an AK-47, as is allowed under Texas's open carry laws. Foster reportedly approached the car, and Perry perceived that he was threatening him with the rifle, although eyewitnesses dispute that. Police Police say Perry drew his pistol, which he was legally allowed to carry, and shot Foster, fatally wounding him. An eyewitness recorded and posted video of the incident. Perry then drove away and later called police, who detained him briefly until he claimed he shot in self-defense. Perry and his lawyers argue he was justified to use deadly force under Texas's Stand Your Ground law. Austin police say they're still investigating the shooting. Both Perry and Foster are white, but BLM supporters say the shooting shows police don't place a high priority on protecting protesters. A Fairbanks civil rights advocate says he's also troubled about the case and its potential to further inflame local residents and activists angered over police brutality toward Alaska natives and other people of color. There's a Blue Lives Matter marches that are going on. There's Still a lot of activism with the natives and the uh, police department and things of that nature. And then here we have the military situation. Benny Colbert is a former head of the Fairbanks NAACP chapter, and he spoke about the matter as a concerned citizen. Colbert says he's troubled that Army officials permitted Perry to come to Fort Wainwright despite the fatal shooting and now the indictment. I, I think the military, somebody should have took this into consideration prior to bringing this into our small community. According to the Travis County District Court Clerk's Office, the next court proceeding in the case is scheduled for July 22nd. But a person in the Travis County Attorney's Office who spoke off the record says barring a plea deal or dismissal of charges, it may take a while for the case to come to trial because of a backlog of cases left over from the pandemic shutdown. In Fairbanks, I'm Tim Ellis. Anchorage Superior Court Judge Jennifer Stewart Henderson will be the newest member of the Alaska Supreme Court after Governor Mike Dunleavy appointed her on Wednesday. Henderson has lived in Alaska for 18 years and has been a judge since 2012 when she was appointed to the district court by former Governor Sean Parnell. She was appointed to the Superior Court by, in 2017 by former Governor Bill Walker. She has primarily heard civil cases as a judge. In December, she weighed in on a lawsuit over Dunleavy's vetoes of state funding for abortion for, from the court system's budget. She ruled them as unconstitutional, saying they violated the separation of powers doctrine. 
She wrote in her decision that she had faith the judiciary remained independent. Dunleavy did not veto the money again this year. Dunleavy appointed Henderson six days after asking the Alaska Judicial Council for a new slate of nominees. Under the council's bylaws, it cannot reconsider nominees unless there are not enough nominees available for a limited set of reasons. This is Alaska Fish Radio. I'm Lainey Welch. Salmon catches are picking up, with most coming from two regions. More after this. Grundon's Deck Boss 15-inch boots feature a protective toe cap, uppers that won't crack, and compression-molded rubber outsoles for better traction on wet decks. Made in USA. The pace of Alaska's salmon catches has picked up after a slow start in June. By Wednesday, the statewide harvest was approaching 32 million fish, of which nearly 25 million were sockeyes. That's up by 124% from last year's sockeye take at this time. Over 18.5 million of the reds were from Bristol Bay, more than twice the pace of last year's catch. The Alaska Peninsula was the second highest producing region for both sockeyes and pink salmon. Pinks, which run in distinct two-year cycles, with odd years being stronger, are seeing catches down by 56% so far compared to the average of the previous three odd-numbered years. The statewide tally has just topped 4 million pinks, although the timing for peak harvests is still several weeks away. Likewise for chums, which have a harvest nearing 2.7 million fish, that's 32% higher than at the same time last summer, but well below the five-year average. Prince William Sound is in the lead for chum catches at nearly 2 million. Meanwhile, catches are going slow for king salmon, and most cohos won't arrive until mid-August. Alaska salmon managers are projecting the 2021 statewide salmon catch to top 190 million fish, a 61% increase over last year's take of about 118 million salmon. The boost is due to an expected increase of pink salmon catches of more than 124 million humpies, nearly 50% higher than last year. Our salmon data comes from the Fish and Games Daily Blue Sheet and the weekly report compiled by McKinley Research Group for the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute. Find links at alaskafishradio.com. Fish Radio is also brought to you by OBI Seafoods. In Kodiak, I'm Lainey Welch. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Hello, this is the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in Kodiak with Kodiak Commercial Salmon Fishery Advisory Announcement number 15, date issued 9 a.m. on July 8th. There will be a 24-hour extension to the current commercial salmon fishing period from 9 p.m. Friday, July 9th until 9 p.m. Saturday, July 10th in the following areas. The Cape Alatak, Humpy Dead Man, Alatak Bay, Mosier Bay, and Olga Bay sections of the Alatak District. The inner and outer upper station sections of the Alatak District will close to commercial salmon fishing at 9 p.m. Saturday, July 10th. Closed waters are currently reduced until 9 p.m. Saturday, July 10th. In the inner upper station section of the Alatak District, and waters will remain open to the stream terminus at Olga Creek, stream number 257304. As previously announced, the following areas will close to commercial salmon fishing at 9 p.m. Thursday, July 8th. 
the inner Iaculic section of the southwest Kodiak District, and the mainland district. Closed waters are increased until 9 p.m. Thursday, July 8th in the inner Iaculic section and includes those waters within 500 yards of the stream terminus Iaculic River, stream number 256201. As previously announced, the following areas will close to commercial salmon fishing at 9 p.m. Friday, July 9th. The northwest Kodiak District, except for the Kajuyak Bay section, remains closed. The northeast Kodiak District, except for the Buskin River section, remains closed. The east side Kodiak District, except for the inner Ugak Bay section, remains closed. And the Afognak District, except for the Duck Bay, Isua Bay, and inner and outer Katoy Bay sections, remain closed. The Fowl Bay Special Harvest Area and the Waterfall Bay Special Harvest Area. The outer Iaculic section of the southwest Kodiak District will remain open to commercial salmon fishing until further notice. Closed waters are currently reduced until 9 p.m. Thursday, July 9th, in Fowl Bay to the stream terminus of Hidden Lake Creek, stream number 251406, and in Waterfall Bay to the stream terminus of Little Waterfall Creek, stream number 251822, and to the stream terminus of Big Waterfall Creek, stream number 251821. Until further notice in that portion of the northwest and southwest Kodiak District, south of the latitude of Cape Kuliak, king salmon 28 inches or greater in length may not be retained by purseine gear in the commercial fishery and must be returned to the water unharmed. Concerning the North Shalikov Strait Fishery, short notice in period closures may occur for seine fisheries in the seaward zones of the North Shalikov Strait area as designated in the North Shalikov Strait Sockeye Salmon Management Plan. Closure announcements may occur at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., noon, 2 p.m., 5 p.m., or 8 p.m. on VHF Channel 6. Cost recovery fisheries have begun in Spirit and Bay Special Harvest Area and Bearden Bay Special Harvest Area will remain closed to common property fishing. Fishery opportunities will depend on the ability to meet KRAA cost recovery needs, and all cost recovery information may be obtained by calling 486-6559. Other closed waters are shown in the Kodiak Area Salmon Statistical Chart and Detailed and Commercial Salmon Fishing Regulations, and Statistical Charts, Harvest Strategies, and Commercial Salmon Fishing Regulations are available at the Kodiak Fishing Game Office. And, of course, the most recent salmon fishery information may be obtained by calling the department's 24-hour record of phone at 486-4559. Thank you very much. Good luck fishing. This is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. Good afternoon, and welcome to your Island Messenger for Friday. It is the ninth day of July, the year 2021. 53 degrees outside, and we're looking for some rain this afternoon. South wind to 15 miles per hour, gusting as high as 20, and we are just getting some pretty high gusts outside the station. Rain tonight, too, low around 48. South wind to 20, decreasing to 15 after midnight, but good gust as high as 30. Rain on Saturday, too, mainly before 2, then showers. And for Saturday night, they're talking about maybe some heavy rain as well. The sun rose today at 5.23 this morning. It was a beautiful sunset. It will set again at 11.05. That's going to give us 17 hours and 42 minutes, a loss of 2 minutes and 30 seconds compared to yesterday. The record high was 80 degrees, set in 2003 and 2004, and the record low was 37, set in 2007. Looking at our local tides, we have a high tide coming up here on the east side at 324 this afternoon. That will be a 6.6-foot tide, followed by a low tide at 818 this evening of 3 feet. And your next high tide will be at 225 a.m. of 9.3 feet. Over on the west side, 
You have a high tide at 335 coming up. That's going to be a 12.6 foot tide, followed by a low tide at 9:11 p.m. of 3.3 feet. And your high tide in the middle of the night will be at 2:58 a.m. and 14 feet. The low tide for the west side tomorrow morning will be at 9:43 a.m. and minus 1.6 feet. Low tide for the east side will be at 9:21 a.m. and be minus one foot. So minus tide tomorrow morning. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 1220, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org. KMXT is supported in part by Orion's Mountain Sports, featuring equipment, clothing, and footwear for your outdoor lifestyle. Orion's Mountain Sports, located at 1247 Mill Bay Road. Hello, Kodiak, and welcome to the July 9th edition of Island Byways. I'm Pam Foreman. Have you ever seen a place quite as green and lush as Kodiak Island? Oh, I'm sure there are other places that get this green. The tropics and Ireland come to mind, but they aren't home. It always amazes me just how many shades of green Kodiak can be. And now, in among all those green layers are a plethora of newly blooming wildflowers. The iris have really kicked it into gear over the past week or so. The lupin are still glorious, but if you look closely, you'll see their seed pods are becoming more prominent which means the end of the bloom is near. The pods are about the size of pea pods and they will become the predominant part of the plant as the blossoms fade and fall off. We'll be in the purple stage of wildflowers for a while yet, but the purple is slowly being highlighted by the cream, white, and yellow flowers. The buttercups, which have been blooming for quite a while, are now joined by goat's beard and the monkey flowers. Monkey flowers get fairly tall, like a buttercup, but the flowers are a bit bigger and just a shade darker in color. When you look closely, there are magic red dots lining the throat of the monkey flower, a little beauty. They seem to like disturbed gravelly soil and are often along the roadsides. I finally saw another of my favorites in bloom last weekend, the showy yellow or cream colored flower called goat's beard. Tall feathery flowers that will be all over the hillside soon. Next up, the wild roses. I've noticed a few starting to dot the hillsides recently, and they'll be prolific once they get to blooming. Bees love them, and you'll love them too. And that's it for Island Byways this week. Have fun, and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening.